Turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5. Chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation go together. So we began that last week. This is a throne room scene in heaven. And chapter 4 is the setting and chapter 5 is the action. Okay, chapter 4 is the setting, chapter 5 is the action. So last week, maybe this diagram kind of brings back the memory of what we talked about last week. In chapter 4, we saw that the throne room in heaven is the reality on which the earthly tabernacle and temple were modeled. So we can understand the worship in heaven better when we connect it to the tabernacle and the temple here on earth. So the setting we saw last week was a setting of constant worship. Today, as we see the action that takes place in Revelation 5, we're going to see the the basis for that worship expand. So let's read Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped one of the most difficult questions about this chapter is this what is the scroll What is written on it? What is its message? 
And to figure that out, we really need to go back and see the Old Testament background of it. Remember, that's our, our kind of our rule for interpretation. As we see all the different symbolism in the book of Revelation, we don't just import our own ideas and meaning into it. We want to say, well, what does Scripture say? We're going to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So we, we look at the Old Testament and see the, the imagery and the, the language that's used there, and that helps us understand what's in this particular book. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. I only have a couple of places I'm going to have you turn. We're going to be in Revelation 5 most of the time, but the first one I want you to turn to is Daniel chapter 7. But while you're turning there, I know I'm, I'm testing your uh, dexterity here, I'm going to show you one other Bible passage as background here. Okay, so while you're turning to Daniel 7, I'm going to show you a different passage. The fact that there is writing on the front and back of the scroll calls to mind the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Exodus 32, verse 15 says, Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. I think we're supposed to be thinking about God's covenant with Israel when we hear the description of the scroll here in Revelation chapter 5. Okay, so now you're in Daniel 7. This is the main text that forms the background for Revelation 4 and 5. Again, I kind of tried to explain this last week, but I think what's going on here is that John sees this vision, and like Ezekiel, you know, struggling to put it into language, John says, how am I going to describe this? And so John reaches back into the Old Testament and the visions of God and the visions of the throne room. And he says, all right, Daniel described it this way. And I'm going to lay it out. And then he adds in some things from Ezekiel and he adds in some things from Exodus and he adds in some things from Isaiah and he adds in some other details that none of them had. And that's how he paints the picture for us. But Daniel 7 is the main background. So look with me in Daniel 7 at verses 9 and 10. Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. So a lot of that description we talked about last week as we described the setting in Revelation 4. And then it says, a thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. That's what we read this morning in Revelation 5 verse 11, the myriads of myriads, the thousands of thousands that, that John sees. And then it says, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So we have a judgment scene with a legal document, books were opened. In Revelation 5, we have a judgment scene with a legal document, the scroll. Okay, now in Daniel 7, look at verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, so this is a heavenly scene like Revelation 5, there came one like a son of man. That's Jesus in Revelation 5. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah or the the slain lamb. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father on his throne, like we have in Revelation 4 and 5, and was presented before him. So 
Jesus, in this vision here in Daniel 7, is approaching the throne. Same thing is happening in Revelation 5. The Lamb approaches the throne. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So again, like in Revelation 5, we've got this language of universal rule. The lamb is taking the throne, so to speak. He's the one who's going to come and be in charge. He's going to execute judgment. It's an ascension scene coming to the throne and, fancy word, investiture. He's he's being officially recognized as having the authority that he has. He is the king. He's now being recognized as such. Okay? You can go back now to Revelation chapter 5 and just kind of hold your place there. But hopefully you see the similarities between Daniel 7 and what's going on in Revelation 5. John has this scene in mind as he describes his vision in Revelation 5. He's using some other Old Testament scenes as well to round out the description, to add some details, but that's the main one he's working with. And as Daniel 7 goes on, we don't have time to do all of it this morning, but you would see beasts and horns and kingdoms and judgments and all the same kinds of things that as the book of Revelation continues to unfold, we find there. Another passage that John draws on is Ezekiel 1 and 2. Our scripture reading this morning was Ezekiel chapter 1. And here Ezekiel sees a vision of heaven with storm and lightning and fire around the throne. And there's four living creatures, just like in Revelation 4. And they have the faces of lion, ox, man, and eagle, like we saw last week in Revelation 4. And the throne is described with gemstones. And there's a rainbow of some kind, like in Revelation 4. Descriptions that are the same thing that John is seeing. And Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 1 and 2, is about to be sent with a message. Ezekiel 2, verse 3 to 5, tells us who the message is for. Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And it goes on from there. Ezekiel is being sent to Israel because Israel has rebelled against God. And then in Ezekiel 2, when you get down to verses 9 and 10, we read, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So this scroll, which is written on both sides, is a message of judgment. And that judgment is against Israel because Israel has rebelled against God. And that's the imagery that John is drawing on 
in Revelation 5. One more passage I'll share with you that's background here. Isaiah chapter 29. Let me just skim through the beginning of the prophecy here in, in chapter 29. Verse 1, Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Ariel means lion of God, but it's the city where David encamped, meaning it's the city of Jerusalem. That's what Ariel means in this passage, okay? Verse 2, I will distress Ariel, and there shall be mourning or moaning and lamentation. So Jerusalem is going to experience judgment. Verse 3, I will encamp against you all around and will besiege you with towers and I will raise, raise siege works against you. Now, if you remember back to our series in Matthew 24, Jesus' Olivet Discourse, this language should sound really, really familiar because this is exactly what Jesus talked about and this is exactly what happened in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was judged, surrounded by enemies. It's God's judgment against Jerusalem and Israel because they rebelled and rejected Jesus, their Messiah. Now, when you get down in Isaiah 29 to verse 11, here is what is said about this vision. The vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. So we have a sealed book that describes judgment against Israel and Jerusalem. Again, this is the background imagery that John is drawing on in Revelation 5. So in Revelation 5, the scroll in this vision is rolled up and sealed. And it's written on front and back, and that connects it to all of these Old Testament texts that we've seen. It lets us know something of what the message of this scroll is. And it says that the message is complete. It's done. It's final. There's no more space to write. These Old Testament texts that we saw were talking about judgment. Specifically, they were talking about judgment on Israel, on God's people. And this judgment is a result of Israel breaking the covenant. God made a covenant with his people that he would be their God and they would be his people. He would be their king and they were to obey him and follow his laws. But over and over they disobeyed. They rebelled. They went after other gods. And when God sent Jesus, the Messiah, the deliverer, that had been promised all the way back to Genesis 3 in the garden, they rejected Jesus. And this was the ultimate act of unfaithfulness to God. The ultimate treachery or treason. Jesus told a story about Israel and Israel's rebellion. The story was about the master of an estate who went away into a far country, leaving tenants to care for his vineyard. So the master is God the Father, the vineyard is Israel, and the tenants are the leaders of Israel who represent Israel. And when the time came to gather the fruit from the harvest, the master sent his servants to go get the fruit. But the tenants beat and stoned and killed the servants. The servants in Jesus' story are like the prophets that God sent to call his people to repentance. 
Eventually, the master sent his son, thinking that surely the tenants would respect him. The son, of course, is Jesus. But the tenants rejected Jesus. They reject the son. They kill him, thinking that they'd be able to keep the vineyard for themselves. And to make his point, Jesus asks a question. What do you think the response of the master will be? Now, the people don't understand who the characters of the story represent, but they're right on target with their answer. They understand the story. Their answer is, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. In other words, God's patience will have finally run its course and Israel will face judgment because they rejected and killed the son. And God will take for himself a new people, new tenants. Over and over, Jesus gives this warning in different ways, different stories, different statements that he makes, but the people don't listen. They reject him and kill him. And now in this vision that John has, the book of Revelation, we are seeing the same message again in detail. Israel is facing judgment. God is vindicating Jesus and God will take for himself a new people. So the message of the scroll is, Israel is guilty. They've broken the covenant. God's plan for the ages will move forward, but the way it moves forward is that two things happen at once. Number one, Israel is judged mightily because they've rejected Jesus. And number two, God takes for himself a new people called the church. But there's a problem. The scroll is sealed. And not just sealed, it's sealed with seven seals. Official seals like this would have a picture on them. They would, the way a cylinder worked in the ancient world, it was like about the size of your finger. It's a cylinder about the size of your finger with an engraved picture all the way around. And so you'd put the hot wax on the document and you'd roll the cylinder through it and then the picture would be there in the wax. When we get to chapter 6, we will start to see the seals getting broken open. Okay, and once all the seven seals are broken open, then the scroll can be unrolled and the judgments will begin to take place. Each seal's different. They each picture something unique and significant. We should probably think of them as the table of contents for what's in the scroll. Okay, it's giving you a hint as to what's coming. But the scroll contains the judgments that will happen to Israel because they have rejected Jesus. But those judgments won't begin until the scroll is opened. And that means someone needs to break the seals. And the one who breaks the seals has to be the one who has the power and the authority to execute the judgment. Who can legitimately do that? As John sees this vision unfold, the mighty angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And there's no one. No one in heaven, angels or other heavenly beings. No one in the land, that specifically that's the land of Israel. The word earth there is it's, it's the, the word for land, for that piece of dirt like we've talked about before. 
So there's no living man specifically in the land of Israel that is worthy to do this and no one under the land, no one in the realm of the dead. So heavenly beings, living people, dead people, there's no one who's worthy to do this. And John begins to weep. Now, why would John weep at this? John weeps because John loves the church. And the church is suffering. The church has been facing injustice and persecution from the Jews. And the judgment in the scroll can answer that injustice. The judgment in the scroll will deal with the enemies of God's people. And it will unfold the plan for Jesus' kingdom. So John weeps because there's no one to open the scroll and make this happen. The one who is worthy to break the seals has to be the one who legitimately, rightly can execute the judgment. And then one of the elders tells John to stop weeping because the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and he can open the scroll and its seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion is the warrior. We understand that imagery. And so John looks to see the lion, but when he looks, he sees a lamb. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. But this is a slain lamb. And it is as the slain lamb that Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. The lamb is standing even though he's been slain. So he's alive even though he was dead. Jesus died on the cross but rose to life again. The lamb is described as having seven horns. And in apocalyptic literature like the book of Revelation, horns are a symbol of power. Seven is the number of perfection or completeness. So this is ultimate or complete power and authority. That's what the lamb has. And the lamb has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Now we saw before, earlier in the book, that the seven spirits is just another way of referring to the Holy Spirit based on some Old Testament texts. But here, the Holy Spirit is associated with seven eyes. Why? Well, the eyes are the organ of judgment. Okay, the witness or the judge sees the evidence. The author of Hebrews says that no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees and then is able to make judgment. And in Revelation 1, you remember, Jesus was described as having eyes like a flame of fire. They can see right to the heart of the matter. It's telling us that Jesus has the ability to judge perfectly the seven eyes. The fact that the spirit is connected with the seven eyes should also probably bring the creation to our mind. When God created the world, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then as the story of creation unfolds, seven times in the story, we are told that God saw that it was good. That's a judgment call. That's God making an evaluation. God saw and made a judgment that it was good. And here in Revelation 5, Jesus has the spirit, the seven eyes, so that he can see and make a perfect judgment. 
We've noted that this scroll contains judgment against Israel based on the covenant for their rejection of Jesus. Now, if we were to go back into the Old Testament, we would see that God pictures his relationship with Israel like that of a husband and wife. They were his bride. So when we see this legal issue that comes up here and and Jesus is dealing with Israel's unfaithfulness, the heart of the scroll document is that it's a divorce certificate. The relationship between God and his bride Israel is broken. It's ending. And the scroll is the legal documentation of that. A broken covenant. A broken relationship. Another way to say this is that the old covenant is ending and the new covenant is beginning. Let me just give you a quick survey in the Old Testament to kind of demonstrate this theme. There's a lot more than this, but this will just give you a little sample this morning. Isaiah chapter 54. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. That word redeemer also has marriage connotation. Think of the story of Ruth in the Old Testament. The kinsman redeemer was the one who claimed the the, the widow as his bride. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Well, if, if God's relationship with Israel is like a marriage, when did the marriage happen? When was the wedding? When, did, when were the vows spoken? Well, they were spoken at Mount Sinai, and there's a whole series of wedding imagery that that spans from the time in Egypt through the Red Sea and out to Mount Sinai. We don't have time to look at all of that this morning. But at this ceremony at Mount Sinai, what does Israel do? Well, they make a vow. Exodus 24, 3, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We do. I do. This is their marriage vows to God, their husband. And there are many other passages that we could turn to as well. But Israel has not been a faithful bride. Instead, they've played the harlot, running after other gods. God says to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. So this is the end of Moses' life. He's about to die. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Notice, God says that adultery is breaking the covenant. That tells you he's thinking of the covenant in marriage terms. Isaiah writes of Jerusalem, how the faithful city has become a whore. And again, there are many, many passages that we could turn to to see this kind of language. If you want an example, go home this afternoon and read Ezekiel chapter 16. The whole chapter is framed in that language. Just as a side note, it should be convicting to us to hear the way that God speaks of sin. Every act of sin is an act of unfaithfulness to him. It's spiritual adultery. It's harlotry. We don't understand the seriousness of our sin. The Bible presents adultery as grounds for divorce. 
And God warns that he will divorce Israel if they continue in their unfaithfulness. The book of Hosea is a case in point. Hosea the prophet is called to marry a harlot. And predictably, it brings heartache as she continues in her ways. Hosea 2, verse 2, Hosea is speaking to his children and he says, plead with your mother, plead, for she's not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring and her adultery. The word plead there in the first line, that's a legal term. It means to strive or contend or to conduct a lawsuit against. God's bringing a covenant lawsuit against his people. Two chapters later, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy, a lawsuit with the inhabitants of the land. And again, there's many places in the Old Testament that we could go to see that language be used. God's covenant with Israel was a marriage covenant and unfaithfulness, adultery, is cause for divorce. So we should not be surprised when we read in Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. God says, I was their husband. We made marriage vows. When I brought them out of Egypt at Mount Sinai, we had this covenant, but they've been unfaithful to it. And so now there's going to be a new covenant. The old one is broken. There's going to be a new one. And here he calls it Israel and Judah that the new covenant will be with. And when we get to the New Testament, Paul helps us to clarify that. Galatians, Romans, other places, we see that the new Israel is all of those who have faith in Christ what Paul calls true Israel. But God refers to himself as their husband. They've broken the marriage covenant. That covenant's coming to an end and it's going to be replaced by a new covenant, a new marriage to a new bride. That new bride is the church. So when Paul wants to talk about the relationship between husbands and wives in the book of Ephesians. He describes it. He's comparing this to the relationship of Christ and the church. Husband and wife. And to the Corinthians, he writes, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And here in the book of Revelation, After the unfaithful wife is judged and divorced, put away, after the judgment falls on Israel, a new bride appears. We'll give you a sneak peek looking forward here. Revelation 19, we read, The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The Lamb that we're seeing here in Revelation 5 is getting a new bride. A little later in that chapter, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb, Jesus, has taken a new bride, the church. But before that can happen, the old harlot must be judged and put away. Now, we're not to that part of the book yet, but I hope that you get a little sense of the privilege 
that it is to be the bride of Christ, to be married to Christ. See, we're no better than Israel. We're prone to be unfaithful. The difference is in the new covenant that Jesus has been faithful for us. He's been faithful on our behalf. We are righteous and pure, not because we've earned or achieved that. We are holy and righteous because he's given us his righteousness as a gift. And this gift of righteousness comes by way of his death on the cross. And it's as the slain lamb that Jesus stands before the throne in heaven in this vision. His death is the final and ultimate legal evidence of Israel's unfaithfulness. The final act of harlotry, adultery, unfaithfulness for Israel is killing Jesus. But it's also what shows him to be worthy to open the scroll and carry out the judgment. And it is what has ransomed the new bride for himself. Jesus' death on the cross, the fact that the lamb is a slain lamb, is also what leads to new worship in heaven. In verse 9, the 24 elders sing a new song. And in that song, they praise the lamb. Why? Because he was slain and by his blood he ransomed people. His death and what it accomplished is the reason for the new song. If we look back at chapter 4, what we saw last week, there was two songs there. One of them celebrated God for who he is. The other one celebrated him for creation. Now we have a new song, one based on redemption. A song that praises the lamb for the salvation that he brings to his people. And then in verse 12, another group joins in the praise. Many angels, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands begin to sing. This is the full chorus of the divine council, all the heavenly beings that attend the throne of God. And in this song, seven characteristics are ascribed to the Lamb, power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the fact that there's seven, the number of perfection, shows that he's being honored for the perfection of his character. He is supreme in all of these kingly characteristics. And remember, this is the slain lamb that is described this way. A lamb is thought of as weak. A being that has died doesn't seem strong. But the slain lamb is the one who has power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing because God's way of greatness is upside down from ours and we need to remember that in terms of how, how we live in this world. And then in verse 13, there's another song that shows the pra- that the praise spreads to all of creation. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, four groups, in the sky, on the land, under the land, and in the sea, the four representative parts of the earth, the four corners of the earth. Notice that back in verse 3, when the question was, who is worthy, there was only three parts listed. No one in heaven, or on the land, or under the land. The sea wasn't mentioned. Why? That's because Symbolically, those from the sea or from beyond the sea are those from foreign lands, the Gentiles, 
So when the question was, who is worthy? The Gentiles aren't even in consideration because they're not part of the covenant. The old covenant was with Israel. But now, the praise has spread to all of creation. Everyone's included. See, the question about who's worthy to open the scroll, that's, it's a covenant lawsuit. It contains covenant judgments. And the old covenant was made with the nation of Israel. But now it's the full number of creation, the four corners of the earth that join in the praise of the Lamb. And it's four things that they ascribe to him, blessing and honor and glory and might. And then the four living creatures, the lion, the bull, the man, and the eagle, add their amen to all of this worship. So what are we supposed to take away from this all-encompassing, incredible scene of worship? Let me suggest a few things this morning. The first thing that I would mention is this. Judgment is real. The scroll will be opened. The books of judgment will be opened. See, here in Revelation 5, the judgment is targeted at the nation of Israel. But turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Uh, It's going to be a little while before we get there in the series, but I want you to see this this morning. Books of judgment will be opened. And your name will either be in the books of judgment or in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 20, look with me at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So again, this is the throne room of God like we've been seeing in Revelation 4 and 5. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Okay, so we have books of judgment and everyone is judged based on what they have done. The books of judgment are a record of what you have done. And we know the judgment. God tells us that we are all sinners. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We are all rebels against God. We all fall short of God's glory. We don't reach the standard. God says, here's the standard, my perfection. And every single person that comes to the judgment and the books are opened and we say, well, you did this and you did this and you did this and you failed to do that and you fall short. You don't reach the perfection of God. You fall short of his glory. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And the point here is no one escapes this judgment. And verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So all whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life are thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. 
and they deserve it because they don't meet the standard. But those whose names are in the book of life do not face this judgment. Whose names are there? Those who trust the Lamb. Those who have faith in Jesus. The people of the Lamb. This judgment is real. Don't ignore it. Another thing that I would point out this morning as we think about this passage is this. Jesus and his work of redemption are central to all of history. This is what the entire history of the Bible was pointing toward. It changes everything. It resolves the dilemma of sin and rebellion. The worship in heaven revolves around Jesus' work on the cross. So that needs to remain central in our lives as well. Gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and what it accomplishes, is what changes us. We've been justified, made right in God's eyes. We're being sanctified, made holy like Christ. And we have the hope, the future certain hope, of being glorified, made sinless one day like Christ. That needs to remain central in our lives. It needs to remain central in the life of our church as well. This message is always at the center of our life together because this is what has brought us together. It's what supplies the common bond that we have. It's the reason that we have to worship together. And that leads to the next thing that I would observe, the response of worship. We saw this last week in that throne room scene in heaven. We see it again this week with the added element now that the worship revolves around the slain lamb. Think about this. If all of heaven responds with worship to the work of redemption that Jesus accomplished, how much more should that be the case for us who are the ones redeemed by his blood? All of these heavenly creatures, they're not redeemed creatures. And yet they praise the Lamb for redemption. Peter writes about how the prophets foretold this message of salvation, this good news. And he adds that these are things which angels long to look into. The angels in heaven haven't experienced redemption, but they long to look into it and they praise the Lamb for it. Shouldn't we, who are ourselves redeemed, praise him with our whole being? And the last thing about our response this morning that I'd like to point out is found in verses 9 and 10. The 24 elders sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The people who are ransomed are from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is the new covenant people of God. People from all over the world, every ethnic group. Notice the individual nature of this. The the judgment that happens... In Revelation 5, those who are judged, it's the nation of Israel. 
what we saw in Revelation 20 is a judgment of individuals. Each person stands on their own at that judgment. And each person who has faith in the Lamb has their individual name written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is with the nation of Israel. The New Covenant is with individual believers from every nation, from every people group. And they've become, then, a kingdom. This is the kingdom of Jesus. When Jesus approached the throne and took the scroll, that was a sign of his authority. He's the only one worthy to do this. He's the one to whom belongs power and might and authority. He is the king and his kingdom has begun and he will reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. And those who are his people have become priests. They're servants of God who belong in his temple, in his presence, priest kings who represent him to the world, and they reign on the earth. This throws us all the way back to the dominion mandate in Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. This command in Genesis 1 comes on the heels of the statement that we are created in the image of God. What does it mean to be in the image of God? It means that we image him to the world. We represent him in the world. We're his representatives. We are to advance his interests in the world. We are to seek first the kingdom of God. And that job that we have in the world flows out of the fact that we have been redeemed and it's fueled by worship. The right response for those who have been redeemed by the slain lamb is that they worship him and then they faithfully represent him in the world. And that's what you and I should be taking away as we read this scene in Revelation 5. If we are the people of the Lamb, then we should be worshiping him with our whole heart and we should be walking out these doors and representing him in the world in everything that we do because we're his people. you pray with me? Lord, as we read these words from Revelation 5, it is a scene of incredible majesty and glory. And yet there is this irony that at the center of it all is a slain lamb. And so this morning we praise you for the wisdom of your plan in sending Jesus to die in our place. We thank you that he is our redeemer. We thank you that he is the slain lamb who has risen, that his righteousness now stands in our place if we belong to you. Help us to be people of the lamb who worship him with our whole heart and represent him faithfully with our whole lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.